take your Bibles, you could open up to Revelation chapter 12. And I don't know which is it, uh, traveling, being a parent, getting a little older, but I catch every cold, which when you speak in essence for a living, it's not wonderful. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to work through it, I believe. Um, we'll see. Um, but I, I think we can do it. Um, it's all kind of the same subject as we look at 12, 13, and 14. Um, we're going to see it's kind of got a intermission from where we have been. And it's going to pull the curtain back and it's going to go all the way back which Revelation often does, to Genesis, and then pull us up by the time we get to 14, all the way back into the seventh uh, trumpet, which then will introduce in 16, the seven woes. But let's ask the Lord's blessing as we begin. Father, thank you for the time that we have now to come to your word, to be guided by it with the decisions we make for the way that we are to engage and to look at the world that we live in. Even as we look at a book like Revelation and we see so much judgment, but there is even comfort in the judgment that we see. And so it is with just a great joy we come this morning to even be reminded of the great adversary, the accuser, and the role that he plays because ultimately, he serves to glorify you. Because he will magnify not only your power and your justice as you make all things right, but even as you demonstrate your protection over your people and your salvation and forgiveness of sinners. We just ask that you be honored as we look at this together. In your son's name, amen. I ran across a term I had not heard before this week, and you may be familiar with this term. It is the term MacGuffin. Anybody? MacGuffin. If you're old enough, maybe. Um, it's a term that Alfred Hitchcock made famous with his suspense thrillers, so his movies in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, but it was this kind of idea that the MacGuffin would be an object or a device in a movie or a book that serves merely as a trigger for the plot. It's necessary to get the characters going and motivated, but shortly after, it's almost completely disconnected from the rest of the story. It kind of starts to decline in importance. Uh, one example in Hitchcock movies would be that of The Birds, a movie from 1963. Um, some of you are terrified from Birds, probably still from that movie. I feel like you can mention old movies, because everyone's like, oh, old movies were good, right? Uh, not always true. Um, but The Birds, why are they acting that way? Why are they attacking people? It never tells you. It just creates the dialogue of creating the characters and pushing this arc forward, and then the story becomes about nothing about the birds at all, but it's about the people and the discovery. It just introduces the suspense and 
the, the, the kind of thriller and tension in that story. Well, Satan is a bit like that in Scripture. Um, in that way in which he is introduced in the garden very early. But we actually don't learn that much about him. And I'm always amazed, even, even now as I continue to read and study Scripture, they're just things I know because I grew up in the church, uh, went to seminary and all those things. And then you keep reading and I'll go, why do I believe that? I just have always believed that. And I'll, most of the time I come out going, oh, that's why I believe that. It's not that I believe something wrong, but it is interesting how much I've filled in the blanks of who Satan is. And then you look at the Old Testament, and it's really after the garden, as he is introduced as a serpent in the garden to deceive Eve, he kind of fades. He's not an important character. And there's a real sense in which I think that's just true. He's really not that vital to the story. His importance to the story, which is he's a main character in one sense, a character, but it's really only in relation to God and to the Messiah that he has any part of the story. Perhaps we would become a little too obsessed if we had more information. Maybe. But we have enough information to know who he is. Enough information to know his role in the world. But yet very little is spent on him in the scriptures so that I think you can be encouraged as a Christian. What we need to be worried about is not very much. It keeps going back to this is who he is, but this is who Christ is, and this is who God is, and God is sovereign even over the devil. And so we begin here in chapter 12, and it breaks a little bit in um, the halfway point of the book, and we're introduced in a good way, and this is a good reminder, as we study scripture, the context always helps us out. Because it's going to have kind of similar language to some of the judgments that were a little bit wild in chapter 10. And you go, well, which time do we take things literal or um, they're corresponding to real things? And which times do they not correspond and they're just metaphors? And then you get into verse 1 of chapter 12, what we see is that a great sign appeared in heaven. In verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven heaven. And so it helps us to be introduced that John is saying these things are signs. These things are pointing to something. If you got off the interstate at Gretna, you'd understand the sign is not Gretna. The sign just says Gretna is this way, right? It's pointing to the, the real reality of things. And you're going to see a lot of that figurative language throughout the next few chapters. And I don't want you to get confused or to feel like you can't understand Revelation because it explains the metaphors to the degree that we need them. And even here, it get, lets you know in signals that when we talk about a lady, we talk about this woman who is pregnant. And we have plenty of textual triggers to go, it's not a real pregnant woman. Um, and there's multiple reasons for it. It even is a good reminder that these signs, though, are pointing to something that does correspond. This pregnant woman is going to be a flashing light to God's people. We're going to see that as we study this morning. The big thing we're going to see throughout the whole chapter is that Satan can only be overcome by one person, which is chapter 4, chapter 5. He's only overcome by the Lamb who is worthy, by Jesus Christ and his gospel. And he's overcome two different ways, you could say. Or at least his people experience it. Because one is going to be carried up as delivered on eagle's wings and protected. And others— who bear the witness of Christ, 
will not, but yet they'll be protected in a different way, similar to the martyrs early in the first half of the tribulation. That's really what we learn. We learn Satan in the context of the big story. He plays a role, but it is going to be a role in which he ultimately will himself have to submit. And he knows it. And he is, even in this text, going to be quick to realize, I have a short time. And you think, why not bend the knee? Well, he won't bend the knee. But he's going to wreak as much havoc as possible. Well, timing-wise, we've seen in the book of Revelation this movement all the way up to the seventh trumpet. And so we saw the things which he saw, that is the apostle John in the first chapter, the visions he saw. We saw the things that are as he addressed the seven churches. And we have seen the things that will have to after these things. And we saw in chapter four on looking at a future where the church is raptured in heaven and looking towards this period of the great tribulation. But there are the seven seals. And that seventh seal, we remember the telescoping effect. Within that are the seven trumpets. And we are all the way through the seventh trumpet. They're all judgments. And then that seventh trumpet, he has this moment after the end of 11, where he moves to pull back and give you background on what is— because you're going to need to know this background to understand why and what is going on as these final judgments and the battle of Armageddon and Satan and all these things. He's saying, you need to know this. You say, the Lord said, John, you need to know this. You need to write these things for the church that we might know this about all of this. Because as I said, we don't have as much material as you think in the other first 65 books of the Bible. And so he writes this way from a different perspective. And it's the perspective, not from, you could say, God's view, but from Satan's view. What we're going to see here is this cosmic story, and we're going to look at it in three different parts. The first part we're going to look at is we're going to see the characters of the war, the characters of the war in these first six verses. And so we see in verse one that there is a great sign that appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And so we're introduced to this first character, which is this pregnant woman. Just by its description, similar to uh, the descriptions of the locusts and different things, you go, well, I don't have to be a, uh, you know, have a master's in literature to go. I think we're moving past just signs that, you know, this, this is something metaphorical. Not many women are clothed in the sun or have the moon underneath their feet. Again, it's not as if this is difficult to go. This is metaphor. But on her head, we see the crown of the 12 stars. And that's where it's probably just as we've seen so often in Revelation, you, as you know your scripture well enough, you start to flash back and you go, I know where the 12 stars have been before. Genesis 37, verse 9, in Joseph's dream, the dream he had of his brothers bowing down to him, says that he had another dream and recounted it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And you see Israel depicted as 
stars. And that's picked up here. And the 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel are crowned on this woman's head. And we also understand, well, what is it, the meaning that she is pregnant? Well, the promises that God has promised from Genesis 3 forward that from the seed of Eve would come a redeemer. And we learn more that that is to come through Abraham and then through David specifically. And it is the Messiah. And so you have this whole picture in a way in which these six verses really quickly look at a lot of cosmic history from early history, catching you all the way up to the woman that is Israel fleeing to the wilderness at the second half of the tribulation. And so why the metaphor? Because it's way easier to give you a picture of six, seven thousand years of history than it is to walk through it. Picture's worth a thousand words. That's why this is here. And so it gives the woman, and it points to Israel and alludes to Genesis. Second character, verse three and four, is this dragon. And then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So in the beginning, you see, like any story, he's building very quickly this scope of history through these pictures. This second one is of a great red dragon. We've seen red before. Described as the red horse that was to bring blood shed, which of course is true here. Because he's going to bring violence. But if you look at Revelation 20 verse 2, Satan himself is called the dragon. And if you just look down to verse 9, the great dragon, it says, was thrown down. And the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he's thrown down. And so, verse 3, you might wonder, but we'll skip ahead and say, we know it is Satan, the serpent of old, the very one you see in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And what, uh, what is this sign, this great dragon? Why a picture of seven heads and ten thorns? We've seen the importance of the number seven of perfection. And I'm looking at it, and I grant you, scholars wiser than me in church history and all throughout that look back. And we're not only here, but we're going to do work in the future as we look towards nations and understanding the dreams of Daniel. And that the seven heads represent those seven empires. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then a future empire that will rise, all coming out of Daniel's dream. And these ten horns being the ten nations that will serve the Antichrist, who will ultimately serve the dragon, depicted as the seven diadems being ruling, because the seven diadems are going to move to being placed on the horns in the next chapter. So we see what it represents, and we see that this picture of his tail sweeping in knocking away a third of the stars of heaven, and he threw them 
to the earth. It's one of those moments where as I'm studying and going, I, I didn't even know people had different views of this. I understand this to be that these are a third of the angelic realm being cast out with Satan when he rebelled. They're cast down with him because you see this idea of throwing them to earth and then the recounting of the next section where they are thrown down. Satan and his angels, verse 9, were thrown down with him. And so I think it makes sense. Some people look at this as the stars of Israel, that he destroys a third of the nation. I think it's probably better just to look at it as the angelic realm. But it was a good example this week of, I've always thought it was a third of the angelic host, but to look at it again and go, why? You know, I think you look textually and you see that same language of throwing down. They're being down. You see stars and angels being used of one another as, as symbols. But they're thrown to earth, thrown out of heaven. And the angel and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Again, this is all just a huge, engaging, wild picture that your mind would grapple what all of human history up to this point, what is going on. There are lots of nations, but you don't know any Jebusites, Ergoshites, but you understand and know Israel, this woman still exists. Satan still exists all these millennia later. And of course, we'll see the child who comes, which the dragon is most fearful of, and he's bent on destroying the child. He waits, and he wants to devour her child. But verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, which is an interesting way, not to draw too much into the Greek, but it's just a way of emphasizing this, because you could say, a son, a male, what, what, you know, you had a child, and yeah, it was a son, a male child. That was a way of emphasizing, saying the male heir who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Skipping over a little bit of, what well, you know, wait, we skipped from birth to death, but again, giving the cosmic scope of what we need to know. But what you need to know is that the child is a ruler born out of Israel, particularly through David, to be the Messiah, which we, of course, encountered throughout Revelation. And this language of he'll rule with a rod of iron, is, this is the second coming, the coming in judgment. And pulling from Psalm 2, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. All you need to know in this context is the child is a king. He's a ruler, and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But he's caught up to heaven, which is to say that in this time frame, we're moving. Wait a minute, I thought he's going to rule. When? Well, that's Revelation. When he returns, he will rule with the rod of iron. And then he goes on, fulfilling the, the words of Christ as he looked in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 6 of Revelation 12. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1260 days, which is just one of multiple ways to describe 360 times 3.5, this three and a half year period of the second half of the Great 
tribulation. If you go down to verse 14, you'll see it described a different way. Nourished for a time and times and half a time, which is three and a half. But we see Satan bent on destroying the child, but never, ever successful. It's one of the things as you're working through, I know many of you are working through the Old Testament, reading uh, your Bible in a year, and you start to see things, this emphasis on seed. This is why. Because from this point in Genesis 3, Satan is after the heir. He's after the seed. One of my favorite examples is if you were to go, which you don't need to, 2 Kings chapter 11 is a number of years ago. I stole it from a friend in one way, but I I did preach it as a Christmas sermon because I I was kind of out of a normal exposition. But what goes on in 2 Kings 11 is a short story where Athaliah, who is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and if you don't know much, even in uh, Revelation, Jezebel's bad. That's what you need to know about Jezebel. And Athaliah is the daughter. And when her son is killed, she seeks in the very first few verses of 2 Kings 11 to kill every single one of the royal household. Why? Why is that a big deal? Why even share that story? Because if you kill all of the heirs, the male heirs of David, you cut off the Messiah. And the priest— saves one little boy, Joash. He hides him. He takes him away in 2 Kings 11. He raises him, and at the right time, brings him back in and dethrones Athaliah, which is a great example of how close was it that this line would be broken, that Satan would succeed and cut off the seed, so there could be no seed. One person. Now, God's in control, so one person isn't that scary. But, you know, you're watching the movie in real time. You know that the hero's going to live, but you're left with that kind of suspense. And so the importance of the child, he's, he's really going back. And again, who are the main players in this war that he's going to describe here in verse 7? And so part two here is the war in heaven. And so the characters of the war he introduces— It's very similar to, like, say, Genesis 1 and 2, where you have the creation of the world, but told two ways from two perspectives. And you might go, why repeat it? Well, because there's things they're trying to accomplish in the way they tell and communicate this story. He's going to repeat a lot of information here, but he's going to add to it and build upon it. Because now he's going to say, now you know who's the character. Now you know who's there. He's going to tell you what happened. You okay? Doesn't seem like, I mean, doesn't take a, a too much to realize these characters are at odds with one another. The pregnant woman, Satan, who wants to devour her and her child, and all of that. Verse 7 describes this great war in heaven. He says, There was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Which you back to, it seems to be, why? They're cast down. Cast down for the kind of, we'll see, second and permanent time in verse 9. Daniel chapter 10 
describes who this Michael is. Well, we don't know much except for to say when he's mentioned, he's in charge. He is the highest of the angels and probably likely very similar to what Satan or Lucifer was before his fall. And it says in Daniel 10, 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing against me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me. Now I've been left there with the kings of Persia. And then in 12, 1, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will stand and there will be a time of distress such as never happened since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book will be rescued. And so it's comforting because Satan has his army, but God has his army and he will wage war, but he is no match. The dragon, his angels are no match, are not strong enough, and they are cast down out of heaven. The victory, verse 9 and is guaranteed that the great dragon is thrown down to the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He's thrown down to earth, and the angels are thrown down with him. And so we see the serpent show up, Genesis 3, for the very first time. He's there. But then you also see, for example, in the first chapter of Job, that he is able to go to, in some way, communicate make the accusations against Job at that point. But this is a moment where in verse 9, it will be permanent. And he knows the gig is up, and he only has a short time to get about doing his wicked work. And what he's going to do is what he's always done, which is he is the accuser, and he is a liar who is deceiving them. And he gets busy in verse 10, doing it every day and night. So even in the midst of rejoicing in heaven, there is still yet the bitter honey. Because they're rejoicing because they know the time is now, but with it will come the judgment. Verse 10. We've seen before, loud celebration, voice is heard in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And we don't have much of a picture except for the few moments when the curtain of heaven is pulled back. That he is an accuser, that he accused Job. And all heaven is saying, finally, he is cast down. Rejoice. The authority of Christ has come in time and in history on the earth He's thrown down, thrown out of heaven. But what has he been doing? Accusing day and night. Jesus, the worthy lamb, chapter 5, has come. Verse 11, what has he done? He says, they overcame him. Why? How could they? How could they overcome the dragon and his forces? Because it says, of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their witness. And they did not love their life even to death. It goes right back to the very good news of what Christ has done in the gospel. Why is he worthy? Because he is the Lamb who appears slain. Because he gave his life as a ransom for many. 
this promise of being an overcomer, which we saw early to the churches. Over and over again, overcomer, overcomer, overcomer. That is the identity of those in Christ as victors, overcomers. Not because of something we do, not because you have kind of thought, looked inward and created a identity and thought, I am, you know, smiling in the mirror, you know, I'm a, I'm a great person or something. No, it's because you look to the blood of the Lamb who's been washed. And you're robed, it says in those early chapters in the church, robed in white. But it's not by what we do, it's by what we put our trust in, what Christ has done. And it's demonstrated he has the power and the authority, which of course we've seen not only in his death, but in his resurrection, that God raised him up the third day. It's very good news. And we live in a world where you see a lot on the idea of focusing on the tragedies of the world. And there are tragedies, and there are people who are, and there's an appropriate use of the term victim. There absolutely can be an appropriate someone who's been victimized. But the call of Scripture over and over again, and call of Revelation is to, but yes, but you're in Christ. And in Christ, you are an overcomer, and in Christ, you have victory. This is the one you serve, the one who has overcome death, and in the future will overcome all of evil and Satan and his armies. That's the one in whom you serve. Kind of even imagine, what kind of war is it? We're not told. But I just imagine it's not much of one. Not in heaven, but quickly they are overcome and cast down in heaven. But then the war doesn't stay in heaven. The war moves to the earth. And so we see the character of the war, part two, the war in heaven, and part three, the war on the earth. Look at verse 13. And back up to verse 12. It says, This reason rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So heaven, they're rejoicing. But if you are on earth, woe to you. Satan is angry. He's been cast out. He knows he only has a little time left, and he's going to go about day and night accusing. Or excuse me, not accusing, but actually doing and inflicting as much damage as God allows during this end of this period. And when the dragon saw, so you look towards what is his timing was, towards that like three and a half year period of the, the end of the tribulation, and the dragon saw that he was thrown down on the earth, and he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so there is a significant hatred towards Israel. And it doesn't take much to go back into history and realize that has been true historically. And you ask, well, why? That doesn't make any sense, except for you read the scriptures and you read Revelation and you read really the whole of scripture and you go, actually, that does make sense. Why would somebody single out a nation to persecute, to kill? You look at the Holocaust, you look at other things and you go, well, Satan has always hated. Why? Because that is whom the Messiah came through and the hatred is there till the end. And he particularly says, out of all the world, I want them. But the Lord doesn't allow it, verse 14. 
I love the picture here. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she would nourish for times and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And so she's given the ability not only to flee, but to be safe and to be nourished. And it's this picture that comes out of Exodus. It's the same idea of being carried away. In Exodus 19, 4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And he does that here, and you, he could bring him to heaven, but that's not his plan. They're going to be there to witness everything that happens, but they're going to be kept safe. We're going to see later they aren't going to be able to buy and sell things. How are they going to be fed? Well, I imagine it'll be similar to Israel in the wilderness, fed it miraculously. But Satan's not done, verse 15. He wants badly to attack believing Israel. Because the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. Again, this is very visual. Earth opens up. It helps her. The earth opens its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. You know, why this? This sounds so familiar. Well, you can you go back to Israel and the pictures, and he kept them safe. He lifted them out of Israel like on eagles' wings. And is there a place in that moment where he takes water and he parts it? Absolutely. And he'll do so again for them because he will keep them protected. Well, there's an attack on, yes, God's people, Israel. God will provide for them. He's going to provide for them in this life, in that way in which he's going to keep them alive. But there are others Then the dragon will turn his attention to, and the attack will be not just on believing Israel, but on all of God's people, those who've become believers, those who have heard the two witnesses and have gotten converted, or have heard the 144,000 share the gospel. And it says, verse 17, that the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have witness of Jesus. And so the dragon is even further enraged. Satan is further enraged because he can't get to Israel. So he goes off and he wreaks havoc on the rest of her seed. Again, that word seed, because it was always the plan that it was through that seed the serpent is ultimately going to be crushed. It was through the seed that the Messiah would come. And you have those of us that are in Christ, that are spiritually grafted in. In what way? The ones who then he says are described as the seed of the Messiah, that is, his children, his people, who keep the commandments of God and have the witness of Jesus. And so it's true. He's going to protect both. And that's a good reminder here as well. Even in this moment in time, though he is not going to protect everyone the same. And so we have to trust the Lord with his plans. That His purpose for Israel is unique here. But the unbelieving Gentiles are going to serve a different purpose. And they're going to look to seem to join those martyrs saying, How long, O Lord, before judgment is met out? And they'll be given in those white robes. Either way, this is true. As you look at Satan, you look at the devil. 
First John 2, 1 says, whether this is, you know, the church today or in the future, it clearly Christ is going to protect his people, Israel, in the tribulation. But he's also going to care for even the Gentile believers who fall by the sword. But John says, same author of Revelation, that my little children. That's really, you know, we don't talk in seeds, but that's what it is. Children, right? Is it my little children? Am I writing these things to you so that you may not sin? And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And I love that the picture here is of Satan accusing not just Israel, but all the time that he, from the garden to now, he is day and night accusing. But John reminds us that there is an advocate with the Father. And you can say a lot of things, a lot of bad things about lawyers. But I'll take Jesus as my advocate. Saying, yes, you're right. That's true, that's true, that's true. But he's mine, and he's been forgiven. And yes, if that was true, he would deserve that. The wages of sin is death and punishment. But in Christ, we are forgiven and given life. And he cannot accuse. He might be able to, in this case, and even in today's world, impact our lives. The dragon may go around the world in verse 17 and kill, but he can't touch the souls of those who believe and are the witness of Christ. And so they flee just as Matthew 24 says, to the mountains. When they see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken, Jesus said, through Daniel, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And that's what they do, and God protects them. And then Satan is unleashed to wreak havoc on the world. And you're going, well, where are we? Well, clearly we're caught back up at least to the point where he is wreaking havoc now in the second half of the tribulation. And so those seven, uh, as we get to the, the trumpets, you go, okay, I understand why this can happen. Satan is loose relative to not being bound the way he is later in verse 19. I find comfort in that. Comfort in that truth. Comfort in that reality. We've seen God's sovereignty over Satan over and over again, but also comfort that God cares for his people, whether in life or in death. He will keep and care and be an advocate for us. There's a real way in which Satan is the MacGuffin. He's only there to magnify the glory of the Lord, to push forward the story of the Messiah, to see this great antagonist who really doesn't have a unique role on his own, except for to say, look at what the child, look at what the Messiah, look at what Jesus has done. Satan is not the story. Rather, it is God through Christ redeeming a people for his name. There is comfort. And as if the church age we find absolutely comforting that not only has he defeated death, but we know even when the world is feeling like it is enclosing around that the church will prevail and the gates of hell will not stand against it as Christ has said. Flip back to Psalm 91, which was providentially 
I did ask, not intentionally chosen, but providentially, uh, it fits really, really well. Psalm 91. I just want to read the first four verses as we close. I don't know if you guys know, there's a hymn based on this. That's, that's a great, great hymn. But it's a reminder that God will care, that God protects. And I love that it's under his wings. Just as he gives wings to the woman to fly, he protects us. He protects his people. And so we can say just as much as future Israel will be able to say that Psalm 91, he who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and bulwark. Let's pray. Father, we take comfort in your promises to your people, promises to your church, that the gospel will go forth, that it is like uh, in the parable, the mustard seed, that from that little seed, it is going to grow and expand into a large bush so unlikely Something so small would start in Jerusalem, but yet expand to Judea, Jerusalem, and to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that even as we face challenges and trials and sufferings in this life, perhaps that don't even compare to the ones that are prophesied in the future, in the tribulation, yet they are real. And we find comfort that we serve the same God who protects and comforts in the future. We serve you today, and we abide and know that you are a shelter, and we know that even as your church, we strive to be a pillar and a buttress of truth to declare, thus says the Lord to a lost and dying world, that we believe this, that under your wings we can take refuge and that your truth is a large shield of protection and bulwark. We just thank you as we can look to you for our strength. We just ask these things in your son's name. Amen.